I'm trying to figure out who I am now that I am no longer Marketplace's Tess Vigland. I'm just Tess. Welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Hi there, and welcome back to A Congruent Life, where we're continuing to explore and share inspirational stories of authenticity. I'm Andy Gray, and thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you being here and sharing these stories with us. This is episode number 21 of A Congruent Life. This episode shares a conversation that I recently had with Tess Vigeland. If you're a fan of National Public Radio in the United States, you may recognize Tess's voice, even if you don't know much about her. She's been on public radio for over 20 years, including Oregon Public Broadcasting early in her career, for those of you with connections to the Pacific Northwest. And for the last decade or so, she's been part of NPR's popular national program called Marketplace, including serving as the host of Marketplace Money. Tess gave an amazing, heartfelt presentation at the World Domination Summit last month, July 2013, in Portland, Oregon, where she shared her personal journey about getting back to Remarkable. This is one of those cases where, honestly, looking at the schedule beforehand, I didn't pay that much attention to her spot on the schedule. But wow, Tessa's story completely captivated the audience and brought me to tears, and one of the clear highlights for the weekend for me. If you can, I urge you to take the time to watch or listen to Tessa's presentation. I've linked to a video of her time on the WDS stage in the show notes, which you can find at acongruentlife.net slash 21. And now here's our conversation in which Tess reflects on her experience presenting at the World Domination Summit, what she's learned from it, and what's on the horizon for her. I'm grateful to be talking today with Tess Vigeland. Tess's voice is well known to listeners of public radio. Until late last year, she was the host of the national program Marketplace Money. You might have also read her writing work in the New York Times. Tess, welcome to A Congruent Life. Thank you, Andy. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's really quite an honor to get to connect with you in this way. Certainly been familiar with hearing your voice on the radio for years. And I was a bit surprised to see that you were going to be one of the presenters at WDS, which is the World Domination Summit in Portland, Oregon from last month. And I think the presentation that you gave ended up being one of sort of the sleeper hits, if you will, of WDS. An unexpected match between someone like you as a journalist and maybe the typical crowd that might attend the World Domination Summit. Yeah, you weren't the only one who was surprised I was there. I was too. (laughs) It's, you know, it's, it's really not the kind of event that I usually, you know, would speak at. I've, you know, I've been speaking for years in front of city clubs and rotary clubs and what have you, um, you know, smaller audiences of three to 500, mostly just talking about business and the economy. And this was something completely different, 3,000 people, total strangers, who were, I felt like, you know, expecting me to be um, somehow 
inspirational. And, you know, I'm just a journalist. I'm very cynical. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not very given to inspiration. And I was talking about myself. And when you're talking about yourself and your own story, it's very easy to be very afraid that you're going to come off sounding self-important and self-absorbed. And I lived in fear of that <laughs> up until the moment that I stepped on the stage. Because, I, you know, I wanted to, I was hoping that it would somehow be um, more universal, but you, you just, you never know how people are going to respond, uh, particularly to your story. And I tell you, it was like no other experience I've ever had. And I've had a lot of life experiences and it was, it was extraordinary. Um, what that audience of 3000 people gave me was a gift that will last for the rest of my life. It was unbelievable. Why do you think that you were invited to speak at WDS and what was going through your mind when you were sort of evaluating that invitation? Well, I was asked by J.D. Roth, who has been involved in that event since its inception. Uh, what, this was the third one, so I guess three years ago. And I knew J.D. Uh, because we were both involved in personal finance. I covered personal finance for six years at Marketplace. I was there for 11. Um, and J.D. started his own website called Get Rich Slowly several years ago. And so I had interviewed him. And that's really the only way we knew each other. But we knew each other enough that when I left Marketplace, uh, he contacted me and said, well, what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, you know, I gave him some of the reasons why I was leaving. And he said, well, you know, what are you planning to do next? Why, you know, why you're obviously, you know, you're going to leave because you have something else to go to. And I said, well, no, actually, I don't. And we just talked for a while, and um, he eventually said, well, there's this event, and would you be interested in speaking at it? And I told him I would think about it, and about a week later, I wrote him back, and I said, no, <laughs> I, I really am not interested in speaking at this event. Um, and he said, well, why? And I said, what this event is all about is, you know, you've got this tagline that it's you know, about being remarkable in a conventional world, being remarkable in an ordinary world. And what I wrote back to him and I said was, I don't feel remarkable anymore. So how can I get up on stage and pretend to tell anyone else how to be? And I said, you know, it's, this is just, this has been a real struggle for me trying to figure out who I am now. I had this identity for a decade plus, um, arguably 20 years plus as a journalist in public radio. And now I don't have that anymore, and I don't know who I am, and I don't know what I want to do. And he said, well, then you have to come. <laughs> That's exactly why you should come and talk about that journey. So he asked me that back in January of 2013, had finally convinced me by the end of February, and um, checked in with me every few weeks to see how the speech was going. And I said, oh, um, yeah, it's going fine. Well, I didn't write a word of it until five days before I delivered it. Because I was going through all kinds of things, including this huge job opp opportunity that I thought I might get. And it's very hard to write a speech about how you feel about being on your own, unemployed, self-employed, when you think you might be employed pretty soon. You know, eventually, uh, after I said yes, I just sat on it for almost six months. As I said, I wrote it five days before I delivered it. And 
the rest, as they say, is history. It is now, I, I refer to it as the speech, capital T, capital S, in my life, because it changed. It changed my life. It changed me. Um, not the speech itself, but what has happened since then and the reaction to it was so unbelievable for me that um, it has changed me. So what's going through your mind, say, five days before the event occurs? You've, you've been through this big job opportunity, and we can talk a bit about that. Yeah. But you get to this place five days before, and you're supposed to go on stage to 3,000 people who are not really your people. Right. What's going through your mind in, in terms of your, your own sort of preparation and mindset? Yeah. And, you know, when we say they're not really my people, I'll kind of explain, and I think I touched on this a little bit in the speech, that, you know, as, as I already said, I'm I'm a journalist. I am. Um, I consider myself a creative person, but not to the extent that a lot of the people in the audience were. This is a group of three thousand entrepreneurs, bloggers, creative types, artists. Um, you know, I am a musician, but for a living, I'm a journalist, and I do the news. And um, I have become a very cynical person, uh, very hardened. I think. Uh, not particularly prone to a lot of self-introspection and not particularly prone to uh, trying to come up with, you know, the top 10 list for how to live your life. And that seemed to me, having not been to the event, to be kind of where that event goes. It's a very, you know, inspirational top five ways to be happy, that sort of thing. And prior to getting there, I was like, these are not my people. Well, it turns out they're totally my people, but that's, we'll get to that. I was a finalist for a job with NPR as the host of Weekend All Things Considered. And this is a process that started just two weeks after I left Marketplace. And this would have been the job of a lifetime for me. This would have been something that would have been a capstone on what was already a pretty impressive, awesome career as a journalist in public radio. Uh, I found out uh, just a little over a week before the speech that I didn't get it. And I had tried to convince myself that I wouldn't, but there was, you know, I let myself hope a little too much that this was actually going to happen to me. So my disappointment level was off the charts. I really, I mean, I sobbed. I wept when I found out that I didn't get it. Um, so this is the context in which I decided that, you know what, I don't have anything to lose anymore. I did not get the job, the dream job that I wanted. Now, mind you, I already had a dream job that I left voluntarily, but this would have been even bigger. So, you know, as I, as I realized that, oh my goodness, I have a week before I have to give this speech, I better write it. I just decided that I had nothing to lose. So why not just put my heart and soul out there on a platter? And that's what I did. So I found out officially on a Friday that I didn't get the job. I let myself mourn it for the next couple of days. And I started writing, writing the speech the Monday before the Sunday that I delivered it. And I finished it on Tuesday. And it basically, you know, it's one of those things you hear writers talk about just basically, and <laughs> pardon the uh, scatological nature of this, but just puking it out. That's basically what I did. It just came out of me all at once. People have talked since then about how the, how I had this great structure to my speech and how I built up, you know, this tension and all that. I don't know how that happened because it just it just came out of me. Tuesday night I left for Portland and 
Thursday was the first time I actually set, I delivered it out loud. I didn't even know at that point how long it was. And I delivered, I delivered it for my husband and my parents on July 4th, just before we started watching fireworks. And I cried uh, probably five or six times while I was doing it. I just, I couldn't even make it through sentences. That's how personal this speech was for me and how painful it was to be saying some of these things. The first time you say out loud, I don't feel remarkable anymore is a gut punch. I wrote it, but still hearing myself say it was really, really hard. So I got through it. I did it. I rehearsed it again Friday morning in front of some of my parents' friends. My parents, I grew up in Portland and my parents still live there. And then I did it again Saturday night for some of my oldest friends in the world from high school. So each time I cried less, fewer times, but each time I still broke down at that sentence. And that's, you know, in the last third of the speech. So by the time I got to the auditorium on Sunday, uh, I, I knew I had a, I knew I might have something because of the reaction of people who heard it in rehearsal. People who were not even my age, my parents' age, were saying that there, was, that there were things in there that spoke to them about change, about uncertainty, about feeling comfortable with who you are. Some, another set of friends actually said it spoke to them about relationships, like having nothing to do with their jobs, but about you know, relationships with, with, with men and women that they had had in their lives. By the time Sunday morning came around, um, I was terrified. That was the largest group I had ever spoken to. And mind you, I spoke to millions of people on the radio. But that's an entirely different thing, entirely different proposition from getting up on stage in front of 3,000 strangers and pouring your heart out. And so I paced backstage for a couple of hours while there were other speakers. And then JD introduced me, and I walked out. And within 30 seconds, I knew that this audience was with me and pulling for me. There was just something in the room. I cannot explain it. I don't know what it was, but I felt like within 30 seconds, people like grabbed onto me from the audience and just lifted me up for 35 minutes. I felt that in the room. People laughed in places I didn't even expect them to laugh. You know, people cheered for me in places that weren't like cheer lines. They were just there for me. And I made it through without any tears. But then, you know, as soon as, as soon as I finished, the reaction was so overwhelming that, as you know, you saw me, I broke down on stage. I just started weeping. It was one of those life moments that I will never, ever forget. And as I said earlier, it's a gift that those 3,000 people gave to me. Um, it's hard to explain. It's really hard to explain. But that moment changed me. And I'm still figuring out what that means. But it changed me. It really was a beautiful moment. You could you could feel that in the air. I, listening to your description of it, it's, I think, pretty consistent with what the audience was feeling. There was something really special happening on stage there that day. And a really remarkable just a real remarkable sort of display of vulnerability and honesty. Like you said, you brought yourself there and you said, I have nothing to lose. Yep. Here's me. Here's Tess. Here's yeah. what's going on. Yeah. And you know, that's, we keep saying these aren't my people, but I think 
because they weren't all necessarily my people, they didn't even necessarily know who I was. You know, certainly I think there were plenty of public radio people in the audience, but not everybody. And because of that, you know, I took them on this journey of trying to figure out who I am now that I am no longer, as I put it in the speech, marketplaces, Tess Vigland. I'm just Tess. And that's been a very difficult transition for me as a public persona. But they didn't care that I was marketplaces, Tess Vigland. They thought I was pretty awesome just as Tess. And that's something that I needed. That's something that I needed to hear. Clearly, I provided something in my story that other people wanted to hear. But that audience provided me with, it's not, not validation, but just a, an acceptance of me as whoever I am going to be now that I'm no longer public radio's Taz Vigland. They don't care. They just want to know what I'm doing next. And that is a pretty amazing thing. And you talk about, you know, the vulnerability of the speech. Um, people have talked to me about how honest it was and how authentic it was. And the more I hear people talk about that and that as a reason why my speech resonated with them, the more I've tried to figure out why that's so special and why it's so unusual that people sat up and took notice of it. Why is it that authenticity and honesty and vulnerability are so lacking to an extent that when people see it, they're just stunned by it. Um, and I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I guess, you know, there's a lot of artifice in our world and we all are afraid of, letting people see our flaws and our mistakes and our insecurities. And I'm certainly one of those people. Maybe it was easier for me to actually get up in front of a bunch of strangers and tell this story because they didn't know me and I might never ever see any of them again. That hasn't turned out to be the case. I've got all kinds of new wonderful friends, but I think it, I think it is an interesting commentary on what we hear these days from people both within our circles and from without. And, you know, it's something that I hope to think about and explore further, you know, trying to figure out what it is about what I said that people responded to so strongly. I think that's an excellent point. I, there, there is something I think deep in our psyches that respond to story, that yeah. respond to this kind of honest retelling of an experience. You know, I've been talking to a lot of interesting people on this program, and what I hear time and time again are that what people really like are hearing the stories. Right. You know, they're interested in the work that people are doing in the world because that's part of who they are and what their stories are. But really, it's the story that people can resonate with because there's a sort of a shared human experience there. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, quite frankly, that my experience as a journalist for 20 plus years, two plus decades, it helped me in that because what I do is I tell stories, but I tell other people's stories. And I'm very good at that. I'm very good at... <laughs> doing what you're doing now, which is asking the questions and drawing other people's stories out of them. What I was not as familiar with was telling my own story. And that was 
incredibly scary uh, for the reasons I talked about, not least of which were I, you know, I was just worried that I was going to come off sounding, you know, totally self-absorbed, like the world was all about me. But I think that there is a, a real push and pull within all of us. You know, on the one hand, we all want to be very unique individuals. We we want to know that there's no one else in the world that's like us. And indeed, there's not. But at the same time, we all have this longing for uh, the knowledge that other people have been through and are going through what we are going through, that there is a commonality within the human condition that um, just makes us feel more comfortable with how we are walking through life. And I guess what I did was touch on some of that, um, you know, whether it's the longing that so many people have to leave their work environment, just up and walk out, which is what I did without a plan, without even a dream to fall back on. Or if it's the longing to be remarkable and figure out how you define that. There is, I think, this constant pressure on all of us to constantly be remarkable, to constantly be bettering ourselves and topping ourselves. And I talked about that struggle on stage and how, you know, I I don't know if I'm ever going to top myself. Uh, Although the speech helped. You know, I thought I had topped out with this amazing job that I left, and then I give this speech. Of course, now I'm supposed to write a book because of the speech, and, you know, I'm terribly afraid that the book is never going to be as good as the speech. I tapped into these themes of pressure and being remarkable and trying to figure out whether you have a dream or not um, that were just these common elements that I guess a lot more people go through than I even assumed. You know, as I said, there's that push and pull. We all want to be unique and yet we all want to feel like we're not the first people going through this. And I guess, I think maybe that's a little bit of what I tapped into. Well, speaking of telling your own story, as you said, you you now have a book that you're working on. So I guess there's going to be a bit more work of telling your own story. (laughs) There is going to be. Yeah. So there was an executive editor from Random House in the audience when I gave that speech and he sent me an email that night saying, maybe your fourth act is a book. Uh, cause the speech was structured in, in three acts. I said, I didn't know what the fourth act was going to be. Uh, and 11 days later I had a book deal. I, you know, I don't even have the words for that. I, I don't know how that happens. That doesn't happen to people. It just doesn't. Right. It doesn't happen. No. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so everything that's happened in the last, you know, two months, has been so surreal for me. Um, I'm not one of those people who, you know, always wanted to write a book. In fact, I've had, you know, I've had publishers ask me to, and I just never wanted to, partly because they wanted me to write about personal finance, and I'm kind of done with that. Um, But, you know, my reaction to this was, you know what, based on what that audience, how, how they responded to this, there's more to say. I haven't figured out exactly what that is. I have a year to do so (laughs) to write the book, but I'm just trying to go along for the ride at this point. I am trying to just be okay with not knowing what's next, with not understanding what's happening to me. Um, You and I are friends on Facebook and you've seen my posts going, what, what is this? What, 
how is this happening to me? I don't understand. And I'm just starting to be okay with that and kind of reveling in it uh, for the first time in my life. I pretty much planned out my life uh, from the time I left college, even before. I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and then I accomplished it by the time I was 32. So quitting my job at age 43 and not knowing what to do was not part of the plan. But now, given what has happened to me over the last six, seven weeks, I'm pretty okay with that. Um, but again, as I said, it changed me. It's, I'm, I wouldn't have been okay with this two months ago. I would have been like, uh, no, this is not good. This is not good. I, I have to know, I have to know what's coming next. Now I'm just kind of taking it as it comes and it's fun and it's weird. It's still a little uncomfortable with, but I'm getting okay with the uncomfortable um, and all, you know, all these opportunities are now coming my way. I'm going to start writing a blog for AOL, uh, which I never would have thought would happen. It's just cool. It's just plain cool. I just, I can't, I can't, I can't believe that it has all turned out this way, but that says something, right? It absolutely does. Sometimes we need to get out of our own way and, exactly. and be willing to let go of these grand plans that we have. Yes. Yes. So that's something I am learning. And learning how to be comfortable with getting there. <laughs> there must have been a piece of that in you intuitively, though, way back in your decision to leave Marketplace. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think, you know, I haven't, I haven't really, I've decided not to really talk about why I left because it was an unhappy circumstance. Um, and I, as I explained in my speech, I didn't give a lot of thought to it. I had not, it's not something I had thought about for weeks and months. And so I had a plan. I gave notice and gave them three months and then I left. So I guess, I guess there was something within me that said it would be okay eventually. But when you're a type A person and you've had all these goals all your life and everything, you don't expect it to take as long as it did for me. I thought I would have something in place, either a rip-roaring freelance career or some great new job within three, four months. I know what's been happening in the economy because I covered it from the moment that Lehman Brothers went down and even beyond that. So I know that the dumbest thing to do, at least according to all of us journalists who tell you these things, was to quit my job without having another one lined up. Um, but I did it anyway. So yeah, I guess there was something in me that felt like something was going to happen, but I certainly did not expect it to take as long as it did. I definitely did not expect it to take the form that it did. And I was terribly uncomfortable while I was waiting to see what was going to happen. Although that, that sounds very passive. It's not like I was just waiting to see what the world was going to come to me with. Um, you know, I was looking for jobs and trying to figure out what I was going to do next. But um, I was very, very uncomfortable with not knowing what was going to come next and having that drag on for as long as it did. So, yeah, I was brave and I was, you know, willing to take that you know, what, what we call the leap without a net. But I don't know that I was terribly realistic with myself 
about how long that was going to last. And had I not given the speech, I, I don't know. I don't know how long I would have been kind of treading water swimming around. Although, I mean, you know, as I said in the speech, I, I had had a lot of really great opportunities. I'm still right for the New York times, still freelancing for NPR. But, you know, to me, I had decided that I really didn't like freelancing. I liked the, you know, the structure of a job. I liked the certainty of a job. So I liked the certainty of a steady paycheck. So if I had not done this speech and, and everything that followed, I think I would have continued to be really, really uncomfortable with how it was going. And I think I would have kept getting questions from family, from friends saying, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and now I can say, oh, I'm writing a book. So leave me alone. <laughs> One of your interesting observations, I thought, was when you talked about when you actually have your own dream job, when you're in that position, right. you don't necessarily spend a lot of time dreaming. No, you know, and as I said, I, uh, I mean, I kind of, I very briefly traced the history of my career, which, you know, started, I went to J school, I went to journalism school in Chicago. And then, um, I mean, I, I got a really, really, really great job right out of college in 1990, um, working for Oregon public broadcasting. And then I just kind of hopped, I graduated markets after that in terms of size, went to Boston and then ultimately got to truly my dream job um, 11 years into my career uh, at Marketplace. I had decided long before that that that's where I wanted to work. That's where I wanted to head my career toward. And it didn't take as much time as I thought it would to get there. So that's when I talk about, you know, kind of reaching an apex in my career at 32. That's what I'm talking about is getting to Marketplace and being a host at a national radio show on public radio stations across the country. That's pretty big. That's a pretty big deal. Having your dream job at 32, then it's like you kind of stop thinking about what else might be out there. Um, why would you? If you've got your dream job, you're not going to spend a whole lot of time thinking about what your dream job might be, <laughs> just by definition. So when I quit Marketplace, when I left, not only did I have to answer the question, what are you going to do next? I had to answer the question, what do you want to do next? And I couldn't, I couldn't answer it um, because I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I guess that's one of the lessons that I tried to impart in the speech was that maybe that wasn't very wise. And it's something that I would tell people who are in their dream job to think about it, to spend a little bit of time thinking about it. Think about what else you might want to do. I mean, you know, I could say, yeah, I love cooking, so maybe I want to go to culinary school. Um, I'm a pianist. Maybe I want to go back to school and become a piano teacher. But that wasn't – I didn't think about those things – so much so that they were that they became passions that I could follow after I left my dream job because I was passionate about what I was doing. So I should have thought about it a little more. At this point, it's worked out pretty well, so I don't have a lot of regrets. 
but I think it would have been very wise of me and I would encourage people um, in their dream jobs to just spend a little time every once in a while thinking if things went south here, if they turned out, you know, just if things changed and I wanted to go and do something different, what would that be? What might that look like? I'm not a believer in the five-year plan or the 10-year plan. I think life changes too fast for that. And there's, I tell you, I've learned now that there's something to to be said for spontaneity. But um, that doesn't mean that you don't think about what else you might love to do. And honestly, (laughs) you know, Andy, I'm still thinking about that. Because as far as I'm concerned, the book is really an extension of what I used to do. It's still journalism. It's still writing. It's still interviewing. So I haven't really made the leap here. I haven't really made, I haven't really changed what I do. I have a year now (laughs) to do some more dreaming about that and think about what that might be. If if I just decide to leave journalism, which I think is, a, is an absolute possibility. So now I have uh, room <laughs> to think a little more, to dream a little more about what that next thing might be. Because even though people are calling the book my act for, it doesn't feel like that to me because it's still the same thing I used to do. So I think my act for is still coming, but I have a year to figure out what that might be. Great observation. That's very cool. Thank you. Uh, The mission of this A Congruent Life Project is really about sharing stories of authenticity. What does living authentically or congruently mean to you? I've talked about, well, even here, I've talked already about how people keep saying how authentic my speech was because I just laid it all out there. Um, There was no artifice. There was no you know, this is how I've worked on this. Uh, it was all just, uh, no, I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I would say that I actually practiced that even in journalism. When I was doing personal finance, I talked a lot about how, even though I hosted a show about personal finance, my finances were not in great shape. Uh, and I talked about the struggles that I had with spending money and saving money. And I think authenticity goes hand in hand with honesty people struggle through life so much even if even when you're happy and you're satisfied and you're fulfilled it's still a struggle i think again what we all want to hear is that there is a commonality to that struggle and if you're authentic then you are conveying your struggle and being honest about it and not trying to pretend that life is easy and that decisions are easy. I think I think it is easier for us to pretend because it's very difficult to be vulnerable, to be authentic in such a way that um, people, you know, people might look at you and say, "Oh, hmm, I wonder about her." And you have to be ready for that because authenticity can bring out uh, can bring out the trolls. But the trolls don't matter. And I would much rather be authentic and, you know, ignore the trolls and instead, you know, have people respond to me like those 3,000 people did in that audience, those 3,000 strangers who cared about my story because it was authentic. 
And I'm, I'm still trying to absorb that lesson. I always thought of myself as a pretty honest, authentic person. Um, I'm a very open person, uh, but I've never been quite that open in that public a setting. And I am learning from the fact that that affected people. And I am absorbing that as a lesson for myself. As I write the book, I have to remember that, that I went into this speech wondering if I was going to sound self-absorbed, wondering if I should really, really tell this story because it was not at all flattering to me as a person because I didn't have all the answers. But, you know, what I thought, of, what I thought of the speech before I delivered it and how it was received is a huge lesson for me that I am, as I said, still absorbing, learning from, and sharing, trying to share with people. I've, I've tried, I've tried to communicate to people who weren't there, uh, what it was all about. And that's a little hard, especially for people who know me. Cause they're like, well, of course, you know, you're always authentic. You're always open. You're always, you know, fun. And you know, you're not, I'm not an artificial person, but I said, yeah, but the depth of what I talked about, uh, was <laughs> not something that a lot of people would talk about in front of a bunch of strangers. So again, that, that would be my definition of authenticity. I think it goes hand in hand with honesty and it's not as easy as we all think it is. It's much easier to construct something artificial. Uh, but boy, it feels good. It feels so good to be accepted for your authentic self. That makes it all worth it. How can our listeners engage with you, Tess? Oh, please, please engage with me. I, that has been the best, the best part about all of this is getting to know people like you, people who I've come to know on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I love getting friends on Facebook. Come and visit me there, either my author page or my friend friend page. Um, I just, I have loved getting to know all these people who I thought were not my peeps, but totally are <laughs> the dominators, the entrepreneurs, all the people um, who gather in Portland every year at this amazing event. Um, so, you know, find me. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Tess Vigland. Definitely come and visit me on my author page on Facebook and anywhere else on Facebook. I am really wanting people, I, I want to hear other people's stories because that's what this book, this book is not a memoir. This book is about this, the struggles uh, that I talked about, um, the struggles that people have with wanting to take a leap, wanting to just jump without a net, um, even when you don't have a dream. And that's the hardest part. It's, it's, it's a little easier to jump, you know, without a net if you know kind of what you want to go do. Jumping without knowing that is much harder. And I want to hear people's stories of wanting, wanting to leave where they are, not knowing how, why it's so hard, or successful stories of leaving, people who are still in it trying to figure out. I've heard from, I've heard from so many people like this woman who worked at the State Department who left her job and now she's like, you know, I don't have, I don't have anything cool to talk about anymore at dinner parties. I mean, of course she does because she's a living human being and we all have great stories. But, you know, how it is that we are so tied to our work lives that we tend to identify ourselves with that, why that is. 
Um, the pressure to be remarkable. I want to hear about your pressures, the pressure that you feel to constantly top yourself and perform at a level that, you know, is beyond um, maybe what you even think you need to do. You know, why can't we all just be, be ordinary sometimes, right? Wouldn't that be nice just to go out and be ordinary? So, you know, contact me with your stories because I want the more stories I hear, the better this book is going to be. Um, I'd love to include those stories in the book, but even if they're just for research purposes, you don't want your name used or whatever, I want to, the more stories I hear, the better. So please write to me, find me on my webpage, uh, which is tessvigland.com. You can pretty much reach me <laughs> in any way, shape or form. You can find me on Instagram, <laughs> send me a picture, <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that really, that has been one of the greatest gifts of all of this, of, of the past two months is getting to know this whole group of people who are struggling and want to talk about it because we don't talk about this stuff, right? I mean, that, that's part of it is people are so surprised that you talk about it because nobody talks about it. So let's talk about it. Well, Tess Vigeland, uh, not marketplaces, Tess Vigeland, but just plain Tess. There you go. <laughs> You're on an amazing journey to get back to Remarkable. And thanks so much for sharing that story with us and uh, spending this time with us on this program. Thank you, Andy. It's been my absolute pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Tess Vigeland. I found Tess's presentation at the World Domination Summit to be a wonderful example of authenticity and bare honesty. It was very impactful to me personally, and she was someone that I immediately knew I wanted to invite to a congruent life. Please take the time to watch her presentation, which I've linked to on the episode page at acongruentlife.net slash 21. Please also take note of her invitation at the end of our conversation. Tess genuinely wants to connect with people to share stories as she embarks on this book project. Please do reach out to her on her Facebook page, her webpage, or via Twitter. If you're enjoying A Congruent Life, won't you please do me a quick favor and join our community mailing list, which you can find in the upper right-hand corner of the webpage. We'll soon be sharing some exclusive content only for those who are on the list as well as some pretty cool giveaways to share. Thanks again for being here and listening to A Congruent Life. I really am grateful that you're sharing this journey with us and appreciate you very much. See you next week. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at acongruentlife.net. See you next time.